welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Israel, Pastor Eli James here, and this is Genesis to Revelation. Today is November 14th, 2020, and uh, uh, Dan from Georgia can't make it today, so uh, I'm just going to do a uh, recap of our first two shows. So this will be Genesis chapter 1, part 3, and... The recap will include you know, some material that uh, Dan and I didn't cover together. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be a part four of Genesis 1 when Dan come back, comes back next week. Or if nothing else, we'll uh, cover some of the major points. And then I'll, I'll bring in some of Pastor Steve's writings on the subject. And then we'll move on to chapter 2. So, welcome. Uh, glad that uh, you, you can be here for this. We are going to do a 12-point a differential, 12 points of difference between Christian identity theology, which is heavily based on the definitions of words in concordances and uh, commentaries by theologians who know Hebrew, uh, Bible dictionaries, you know, obviously the Strong's, but there, there's very many other Hebrew dictionaries that we can consult and uh, give the opinions of Hebrew experts as to what these words really mean. So we'll be doing a little bit of that today. So our first, let me first start with Howard B. Rand, and we'll be covering the, the gap theory in detail today. We just basically touched on the subject last week, but uh, I'll be citing the writings of Howard Rand and Frank Nelty on the subject of the gap theory. But uh, he says, this is Howard B. Rand now, in his article entitled, Created and Formed. I'm not aware of any uh, online presence of Destiny Publishers, so uh, I don't know if this could be uh, I'm reading from a printed uh, newsletter called the Destiny Letter, number 48. Uh, it was sent out September 2003. Uh, I have uh, subscribed to that newsletter for many years. And this is entitled Created and Formed by Howard B. Rand. Uh, in, in the second chapter of this article, I mean, second paragraph of this article, we are fully aware of the controversy that has been going on as to the coexistence of a pre-Adamic race with that of the Adamic peoples. We also recognize the fact that there is considerable evidence to show that the earth was inhabited by a race of people prior to the Adamic era. Jeremiah, the prophet, refers very briefly to the existence of such a race, but he states that as a result of the earth becoming void and without form, it was completely destroyed off the face of the earth, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. So uh, we'll get into that probably next week, not this week. This destruction of an ancient civilization in a great catastrophe, making the earth uninhabitable, was interjected by Jeremiah as a simile in relation to what we was about to take place in Palestine. For the Lord said that every city would be forsaken and not a man would dwell therein. Nevertheless, the prophet referred to an actual event that took place in ancient times, 
which we recognize as fulfilling the conditions outlined in Genesis 1, verse 2. Prior to that catastrophe, the earth was not in a state of confusion. Okay, so good stuff right there. One more paragraph. There is no real controversy between true science and the Bible as to the age of the earth or as to the length of man's existence upon this globe of ours. Between the first and second verses of the first chapter of Genesis, there may be eons of years, thus leaving a sufficient number of blank pages upon which science may write its records of antiquity. However, following the conditions described in the second verse of this chapter, it became necessary for God to restore this part of his creation to its original state of perfection. Well, it doesn't really say perfection. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 never says it was perfect. It says it was good, and it also says it was very good. So that's Howard B. Rand's view of the subject of the gap theory. And so this is one of the first differences, major differences between identity theology and the mainstream Judeo-Christian theology. Very few of the mainstreamers want to even approach the subject of the gap theory because the vast majority of them are literal 24-hour-day creationists, okay? And uh, we reject the 24-hour-day theory 100%. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not, not even tenable. Okay, number two. So that's number one, gap theory. Number two, Elohim is a plural noun. It is a reference to, well, let's uh, go through. There's three possibilities, because many, and I'll be reading from Frank Nelty on this uh, subject as well. So Elohim, since Elohim is a collective noun, meaning multiple beings, that's what it means. It means multiple beings. And the exact, exactly who the multiple beings are is a point of controversy even within identity. But the vast majority of uh, linguists who talk uh, about biblical words, they agree this is a, a collective noun. So who is the Elohim? You know, it's translated as God. Who is the Elohim, word Elohim, referring to in Scripture? Okay, it could be the multitude of angels, the heavenly host. It could be, it certainly ha has to include God the Father. It uh, As the penultimate deity. And, uh, you know, the, so, so when you have the expression Lord God or Yahweh Elohim, which is the, you know, the, the uh, royal title, uh, for lack of a better expression, the royal t title of the supreme being reigning over the multitude of living beings in the other dimension, the, the pre-physical dimension, or what, what most people call heaven, but that's another entirely different dimension, a spiritual dimension, which coexists with this physical dimension, but yet is not part of it. It is, uh, or let me put it this way, the physical dimension is created from the non-physical dimension. So the non-physical dimension is primary and causal. So we can say, uh, but 
And Frank Nelty says that this is a reference to God the Father and God the Son. Uh, that is Yahshua. And he makes a very convincing argument for that. Others have suggested it's the Trinity. And, of course, as I mentioned, it could possibly be the entire multitude of the heavenly host, okay, which exists in the spirit world, but not in the physical world, but could have been the uh, blueprint for the creation of the Adamic race, because it says they, they were created by us, from, by, from us, male and female, Elohim created them, okay? So the, the controversy around the word Elohim, we are clearly on the side that it refers to a multitude of beings, or, or at least a pl- plenum. Not a pl- plenum is a, a, a large uh, uh, things of uh, category, categorized together as a single entity. But... Uh, there's very little discussion about the word Elohim at all in mainstream theology, so they just call it God, and they think uh, that's that's the same as Yahweh, and it's not. There wouldn't be the combination Yahweh-Elohim if they were the same. Uh, but they gloss over that kind of thing. Okay, next, light. In Genesis 1, verse 3, light there is a generalized light. It could also mean the light of consciousness. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, thank, uh, <laughs> Brother Aber says, Elohim is the plural, is basically the construction crew. Yahweh is the contractor. There you go. Well said. <laughs> okay. And belong to Yah says, I thought it was just Yahweh in Genesis 1. It's very interesting because Elohim is a collective noun. And it has various definitions, including a magistrate, God, gods in the plural. And that's the way it's uh, translated in many verses of the scripture. So it can't be the name of the creator, Father Yahweh. Cannot, that his, his name is Yahweh. So we you know, have a major dis- distinction between identity theology and the Judeo-Christians. Okay, again, uh, Genesis 1, 3. Here, as presented, light is a generalized light. It's not the difference between between daytime and nighttime as the six-day creationists presume because, as a matter of fact, the sun <laughs> and the stars and the moon had not yet made their appearance in the sky. Uh, Genesis 1, 5. Evening and morning is an idiom not to be taken literally because literally it is only 12 hours okay this is uh again the the people who translated the king james and the theologians to, to follow their lead have not done any real research into the meanings of the hebrew words i mean they just gloss over it okay so this is a, a major problem with Mainstream theology, they simply do not take the time to uh, analyze. They don't use concordances, they don't analyze the language, and they don't make any attempt to conform the language of the Bible to 
geology and archaeology. I think it was really well said by Howard B. Rand. Let me just, first sentence of the second paragraph I read. There is no real controversy between true science and the Bible as to the age of the earth or as to the length of man's existence upon this globe of ours. Yeah, it's because the, the, the mainstream scientists lie to us about evolution and the mainstream theologians lie to us about the 24-hour literal day concept. It just is not there. It just isn't, okay? So, okay, so we're, we're going to... Uh, let's see if I can find the proper quote here. And uh, I think uh, and Arnold Kennedy uh, it, it takes that view as well. So we have a real uh, a plenum, <laughs> uh, a multitude <laughs> of uh, Elohim right here on planet Earth who agree that uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 has a far different meaning throughout the entirety of the chapter than what mainstream theologians have presented to us. It just is far different from what they claim. So we talked about, uh, and we talked about the Hebrew word yam, not meaning a literal 24-hour day, as they claim. Okay. And uh, we, we find that the expression evening and morning is an idiom and not to be taken literally as it only says 12 hours from evening to morning is only 12 hours. I mean, come on. Don't they use logic when they make their arguments? So we have all of these discrepancies in their own logical contradictions created by their own interpretation that they never consider. So this is really bad uh, interpretation. And so let me just quickly quote, because the evening and the morning expression, it's very important. So I'll requote what we talked about last week. And this is from, uh, in fact, I'll put this in the chat room real quick, from uh, my article on the subject, which uh, is available at anglo-saxonisrael.com, but that's still under construction. So I don't think this, uh, this is from the archives uh, presented from the Wayback Machine. And so here it is in the chat room. Okay, and so you should be able to, now under the topic of evening and morning, uh, we have this. Evening and morning is an idiomatic expression in Semitic languages. Who is the author here? I think uh, I think this is Dr. Otto J. Helweg, H-E-L-W-E-G. Like all idioms, its meaning is non-literal but clearly understood by native speakers. The phrase "evening and morning" can, like "yam," denote a long and indefinite period. The Old Testament itself unambiguously uses the "evening and morning" phrase in just such a way. Daniel eight. We read the account of Daniel's ram and goat vision and the interpretation given by Gabriel. The vision covers many years. Some commentators believe the time has not yet even been completed. Okay, and here's the quote, Daniel 8.26. Quote, the vision of the 
evenings and the mornings that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Revised Standard Version. In Hebrew manuscripts, the evening and mornings is not in the plural but in the singular, identical to the expression we find in Genesis 1. Translated literally, the verse would read, and the vision of the evening and the morning that has been given to you. Here we have a clear indication from scriptural usage that this phrase does not demand a 24-hour day interpretation and can refer to an indefinite epoch. And he, uh, another paragraph below there, he states, The method and length of time used to create the heavens and the earth and life cannot be stated with absolute certainty from science. But these are matters for scientific inquiry, not for dogma. Uh, if, if only I could remove from those Christians who struggle with it the sense of threat they feel when presented with the possibility of long days and of an old earth. I know it is linked with their supposition that to the accept to accept the fossil record and its time scale is to concede the case for a radically materialistic worldview, i.e. non theistic evolution. But this supposition is false. One hundred percent true statement there. The Bible must accord with natural history because Yahweh is the author of both. Therefore, he says, but this supposition is false. If, in fact, Christians would cease to attack paleontologists and biologists, by the way, the science of paleontology, geology, archaeology were begun by Christian scientists and who had no problem correlating the two, the researchers themselves would be free to raise more questions about the validity of their theories rather than combining forces to fend off Christian attacks. Let's not interfere with the investigative process. We Christians have everything to gain and nothing to lose from the advance of scientific discovery. For the God who speaks to us through his works of creation is the same God who speaks to us in the words of the Bible. Amen to that. No truer words have ever been spoken from the article How Long an Evening and a Morning by Dr. Otto J. Helwig. Well said. Okay. So, evening and morning and yam uh, are areas of disagreement between identity theologians and the mainstream theologians. Okay, so uh, firmament should be rakia which it means an expanse. And here I'm going to be quoting from this article. It's, it's from a Judeo-Christian theologian. So he confuses Jews with Israelites. But uh, what he has to say is very important in uh, regard to our subject. And so I'll put that in the chat room real quick. And he has this to say uh, a couple of paragraphs down. He quotes Genesis 1, 6 through 8, where we find the word rakia, which is translated, in my opinion, falsely as firmament, implying that there is a solid dome. And he goes into where this idea came from. Let me just quote Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse. That's the literal meaning of the word rakia between the waters to separate water from water. So there's uh, waters above, but this is all in the sky. 
what what exact line of demarcation is being discussed here is not apparent, although it could be that when these words were written, there was the possibility that planet Earth had a ring of water, just like several other planets do, and that this ring of water, ice, collapsed to cause all the rain for Noah's flood. That's one, one of the theories. But uh, the idea that this is a solid dome of glass, uh, reflective, um, reflective mirror, who knows what it could be if it's a solid. But this word does not mean solid. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, Shemayim. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. So the author, this is fulcrum7.com apologetics. The word rakia implies something that has been spread out or stretched out. It is the noun form of the verb raka, which means to spread out or stretch out. No specific substance or material is inherent in the term rakia. So exactly what it is that has been spread out must be inferred from the context. The context of the Genesis narrative does not imply any sort of solid structure. To the contrary, Genesis 1.8 states that God called Rakia Shemayim, thus equating the Rakia with the sky or the heavens. The term Rakia of the Shemayim, or expanse of the sky, or expanse of the heavens, occurs four times in the creation narrative. Genesis 1.14-15, 17, and 20. Birds are said to fly in the open expanse of the sky, Genesis 1.20. Clearly, the rakia is just the sky, and the sky is not a solid structure. How then did anyone ever get the idea that the rakia was a solid structure, such as a vault, a dome, or an inverted metal bowl? Where did this idea come from? It certainly is not implied by the Hebrew language. But yet, that's what the King James Version uses. Part of the answer, he says, is that pagan cosmological notions influenced the translators of the scripture. Many English speakers have been influenced by the King James Version's translation of rakia as firmament, which conveys the idea of something firm and solid. Interestingly, the origins of the King James firmament go all the way back to the 3rd century before Christ, when he, when Jewish, no, no, not Jewish, Judahite scholars were writing the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures produced around 250 B.C. by 70 Judahite scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. It was produced at the behest of Ptolemy Philadelphus, the Greek ruler of Egypt, for inclusion in the famous library of Alexandria. In the Egypt of that time, a popular cosmological notion was that the sky was a stone vault. It seems that the Jewish scholars, no, sorry, Judahite scholars who translated the Septuagint, and the fact is, the Jews, the rabbis teach the same thing. The rabbis teach that it's a firmament, some kind of solid object. Of course, since every rabbi disagrees with every other rabbi, you know what that's worth. So that the Judahite scholars who translated the Septuagint from the original Hebrew were influenced by this pagan cosmology. Since this is right at the very beginning of the translation, it's quite possible that Ptolemy Philadelphus uh, influenced this translation. Okay, what are you guys going to 
right, how are you going to translate this, okay, into Greek? And so he could have been standing there right for the first few pages until he was satisfied that he likes the translation, right? Anyway, so this is influenced by this pagan cosmology. They translated rakia into the Greek as stereoma, which connotes, connotes a solid structure. Some sick, oops, I went too far, hold on, it's the jumping around on me. Some 600 years later, when Jerome was translating the Hebrew scriptures into the Latin Bible that would become known as the Vulgate, he was influenced by the Septuagint and translated rakia into the Latin word firmamentum, meaning a strong or steadfast support. Finally, some 12 centuries later, as English scholars were preparing the translation that would come by far the most influential Bible in the English-speaking world, the King James Version, and we know what that's worth. It was created to suppress the, uh, the Geneva Bible. They simply transliterated Jerome's Latin term firmamentum into English as firmament. It is important to emphasize that the idea that the rakia was a solid structure was not in the inspired Hebrew language account of the creation week. I agree with this statement 100%. And this guy is a Judeo theologian. This error came in through a chain of uninspired translators, the Judahite scholars of Hellenistic Egypt in the 4th century church, Father Jerome, and finally the 17th century Anglo scholars who produced the King James translation. Okay, so, a comedy of errors. So that covers the word rakia. And the word che is, uh, is one that we discussed uh, in, at great length as well, that uh, it means uh, it's a general term for life. There's no way it can be limited to a specific form like beast. That is an excessive uh, indulgence in editorializing by the King James translator. I, uh, I haven't had time to check to see if uh, if the Geneva Bible uses the same terminology. And uh, Brother Aber says, Job 26.7, He stretched out the north over the empty place, hangeth the earth upon nothing. Is a flat earth possible? Sure. Does it matter? No. <laughs> okay. It really doesn't matter if the earth is flat or round. It, what matters is our mission while we're here on this earth. That's what really matters. Thank you, Brother Bear. So we see that all of these, how should I put it, pre, before there was such a thing as systematic archaeology, systematic geology, even systematic science, that was still being developed in the 15 and 1600s. So this is a lot of guesswork. And so we shouldn't uh, you know, rely on this guesswork, especially of a translating committee of King James, who gave them instructions on how they should translate. No, we simply should not do that at all. So uh, what we're talking about here is a, a thoughtful, a thoughtful translation of Genesis chapter 1, not the conclusion-jumping technique that the King James Translation Committee used, okay? And here we see there's probably an influence of Ptolemy Philadelphus, the 
Greek pharaoh and certainly the influence of King James on the translators. Okay, so the word che or kahi is a very general used word meaning life alive. There is zero place for it to be translated as beast. You must translate it as living creature, which it often does, as we pointed out last week in our discussion. Sometimes it's translated as living creature, which is the proper term. <laughs> if, if you're going to translate it as, you know, for, uh, for a physical being as opposed to general life, a particular life form, then creature is really your only alternative. And then we have uh, verse 16, that the sun and the stars are implied there, not uh, the the word also is added, and the words that imply that there's a moon, it should be translated sun and stars. Actually, let me uh, open up my... Con- uh, my Genesis Esword because I need to quote the verse exactly. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The words he made are added by the translators and also the word also was added by the translators. He made the stars also it should be translated without the added words, and God, or Elohim, made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, the stars. That is the correct translation without the editorializing by the King James Translation Committee. Okay? Well, Jerry says, um, 120, this is something that I learned from just yesterday from doing this research i will read verse 120 and god said let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature but creature here is not translated from kahi or che it's translated from sheretz and what does sheretz mean it means a swarm that is an active mass of minute animals Okay, it's a swarm. That could mean insects. It, you, know, you have flocks of birds, flocks of geese. It could mean that as well. The moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament, rakia, of heaven. Okay, so it could be that they're correct that this uh, sheretz means more like insects. Okay, because it goes on to say, and fowl, or birds. But it could also mean uh, birds that aren't fowl. (laughs) Okay, there's a lot of fowl birds out there. So, again, you have to consult the concordances and competent Hebrew scholars for the meanings of these words and pick apart what the mainstream Judeo-Churchianity has been teaching us. A general comment now, uh, Genesis 1, 11 through 31, where the term kind after kind, like begets like, uh, creatures that have seed within themselves, 
This is clearly talking about genetics. This is genetic law. And there's no difference between Yahweh's description of genetics here and, and the scientific definition of genetics. Every geneticist knows that every different species, from the lowest to the highest, has its own seed and reproduces according to its own seed. No evolution has ever been observed or documented. Period. Never happened. And so, the Genesis chapter 1 confirms the science of genetics and that everything reproduces kind after kind, having its own seed within itself. I don't think you can come up with a better definition of genetics. And verse 127, let me read it here because my my scribbling, <laughs> I can't read my own scribbling here. Genesis 1.20, oh yeah, okay. So, after, as we said last week, all of the so-called beasts that should, and I'll just give you the definition straight from strong concordance, che or kai, alive, strong, life, living, living creature. It's a very general term. So for them to translate it as beast is really incorrect. Down lower on verse 28, they say living thing. <laughs> right? Living thing. Same word. J. So why the inconsistency? Well, it's because they were trying, they were trying to give us their view of reality at the time. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, well done. But we can, we can excuse them for that because there really was no such thing as organized science at the time. That, thing, that was just emerging at that time. One major difference between us and the mainstream theologians is the translation of Adam as man or mankind. No, it is exclusively a reference to the white race, we are the crown of creation. The other races are already included in the run-up to verse one, verse 27. And I will quote, So Elohim created bara, man, Adam kind, 120, in his own image. In the image of Elohim created he him. Only the white race is created after the image of Elohim. Male and female, well, oh, now created, let's see, this is, uh, let me check the, the word here. Yeah, again, it's bara. Male and female created he them. So the general description of Genesis chapter 1, where it uses bara, virtually every, almost exclusively, there's a one use of the word made, but that looks like it's a, a change uh, uh, to some of the living creatures that were already here, which is the terminology, but that's not Yatsar, it's a different word. Yatsar is the word used in Genesis chapter 2. So, we're talking about the creation of species. Genesis 21, sorry, Genesis chapter 1 is all about the creation, bara, of species. Those things that uh, reproduce 
kind after kind and have their seed within themselves. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. The garden comes after the creation episode. Genesis chapter 2 is not a continuation of Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's a subsequent happening. Totally subsequent happening. So you cannot confuse the creation bara with the formation of the individuals Adam and Eve, Yatsar, in Genesis chapter 2. Why? Because it tells us he was done creating. He was done with creating. He was done with bara. So it can't be a continuation in Genesis chapter 2. So these are 12 different points of major differences between identity theologians and mainstream theologians. And of course, there's differences among ourselves in the identity world that we, we do not agree on everything. In fact, um, I have to correct myself because... I was teaching that the uh, the, the re uh, here, I have to go back to the scripture see if I can find it here real quick because it's it's I forgot to put it in my notes oh the word replenish okay the word replenish you know so my line of reasoning has been up to this point well that confirms the gap theory of Genesis one one to two. Meaning uh, that, well, because he had to recreate the recreation hypothesis. He had to recreate, recreate a destroyed world because it wasn't created void and formless. It had to be re reformed, recreated because it was almost virtually, if not totally destroyed from a previous era. But So it turns out that the word replenish is actually based, uh, it's based on the word plenish which I, I think in Scottish, they still use the word plenish, <laughs> right? or, or a similar word. And so that replenish is more like the word inflammatory, which for some reason they added the I-N, but it, it means the same thing as flammatory. But the a new word inflammatory was created, which means exactly the same thing as flammatory. So I think the same thing happened with the word replenish, and we don't need to um, argue from uh, this prefix, R-E, that it confirms the, uh, the recreation account. So, uh, so that's about it for uh, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I see we have about 20 minutes left, and so let me quickly find the work of... Let's see. We're understanding Genesis. Here we go. Frank Nelty. And this, Frank Nelty is one of my favorite theologians. He comes from the Herbert W. Armstrong School. So uh, I'll put this link in here. <laughs> yeah, flat earthers will disown us if you don't believe it. Uh, the globe earthers are more tolerant. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. That is definitely for sure. Uh, I was once baited into a d debate with a flat earther. He he said he wanted to d discuss theology, and the whole thing was about flat earth. And I said, you, 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 it was a bait and switch. 
you, you, I wasn't prepared to discuss flat Earth, so you know that, that's uh, that's the kind of things they do. Okay. So brother Abraham says so basically everything discussed in Genesis one that was created was just a retelling of what happened before the gap uh, between verse and one, one and two. Yeah, the gap theory, and and uh, Frank Nelty now presents a very cogent argument in favor of the gap theory. It's very, very good. So let's go. I have to scroll back up to the top, sorry. Okay, understanding Genesis 1, 1 to 2 correctly. And this was composed or published January 2009. When I came into the Church of God over 40 years ago, one of the things I learned from Mr. Armstrong was the correct understanding regarding what happened in the first two verses of the book of Genesis. I clearly proved to my own satisfaction that Mr. Armstrong's explanation is correct. And that is what I still believe today, as uh, many many identity theologians do, because I can prove that this explanation is correct. However, in recent years, I have at various times also come across people who refer to that explanation rather disparagingly as the gap theory, a term coined by Protestant theologians in reference to this explanation, with the obvious intent of discrediting it. It no, no longer has that disparaging connotation. Uh, I've always come, when I come across it, it's always a, a positive connotation. Anyway, I don't expect anyone who does not have God's Spirit to really understand the truth of this matter. That's the principle of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 2.11. As far as people in the world are concerned, the best and clearest explanation cannot cross that barrier between God's truth and the natural human mind. And furthermore, in matters like this, it is never a case of the facts speak for themselves. Well, either, either way. You have to have proper definitions of words in order to comprehend what is being said. And you cannot have dogmatic theology, whether it comes from scientists or, or so-called Christians. It's dogma. What we've been fed is dogma. Anyone who is familiar with 2 Timothy 4, verses 3-4, through 4, should realize that it is the facts themselves that are frequently denied and rejected. And it is impossible to convince people who deny the facts. That is one of the major ways in which Satan enslaves people. He persuades people to deny the facts because an acceptance of the facts would break his power over mankind. And I believe he doesn't use the term Adam kind. Jesus Christ explained that this is, is the acceptance of the truth that sets us free from Satan's hold, John 8.32, a denial of the facts maintains Satan's sway over mankind. So what we have here is we have two sets of incorrect facts. The six-day, literal-day creationist uh, idea, which has infected virtually all of Christian the theology, and the evolution theory, both of which are totally false. But we are expected to choose between one or two and not have a differing opinion. At any rate, we should never feel intimidated by the views of theologians who don't really understand the truth of God. Amen. People who make no effort to live by all of God's commandments, including the fourth one, are cutting themselves off from a good understanding. So always take their views with a hefty pinch of salt. Sometimes there's too much salt and you have to spit it out. David said the following in Psalm 111, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. 
His praise endureth forever, Psalm 111, verse 10. And as I was teaching last night on uh, Yahweh's commandments and good health, or the relationship between sin and ill health, we have to obey his commandments to stay healthy and to have a, a firm understanding of anything that comes us. Because we have to, number one, we have to be impartial and objective in uh, in our readings and, and not co- and not have a biased view when we come into reading something for the first time. He continues, the corollary of this statement is that those people who do not obey God's commandments are also not going to have a good understanding. And do they obey God's commandments? Do the modern Judeo-Christians obey? Absolutely not. A good understanding is one of God's ways of rewarding the people who obey him. A good understanding is not a right. It is a reward for faithfulness. I couldn't agree more, Frank Nelty. I love Frank Nelty, except when I disagree with him. <laughs> All right, so let's now examine these verses more closely. We'll start with verse 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Before we examine this verse, let's consider some grammatical facts. As far as nouns are concerned, here is what we have in four different languages. I can see I'm not going to get through this article today. We'll pick it up next week with Dan, because this is a fascinating topic and it's a great article. And so uh, it deserves major, uh, major revelation here. So here's what we have in four different languages. In English, we have both the definite article, for example, the, and an indefinite article, a, or an. Thus, in English, we can say a beginning, and we can say the beginning, to help us differentiate between different events. These two different articles give us the ability to express ourselves more precisely and to differentiate. They enable us to minimize misunderstandings. Yes, and the uh, introduction of the definite article the and the indefinite articles a and an are a major development in the English language. In Hebrew, we have only the definite article ha. So in Hebrew, we can say either beginning, when we mean a beginning, or we can say the beginning. In biblical Greek, we also only have the definite article ho and he and to. So in Greek, we can say either beginning, when we mean a beginning, or we can say the beginning. But Latin does not have any articles for nouns. There is no definite article, and neither is there an indefinite article. So in Latin, and remember Jerome, (laughs) the Vulgate, and uh, several theologians have been influenced by the Vulgate, the Latin, So in Latin, we do not readily have the ability to distinguish between a beginning and the beginning. When in Latin we say beginning, then that can mean a beginning, but it can equally well mean the beginning. This obviously creates room for misunderstandings. Where a speaker may want to convey a thought of a beginning, the hearer may understand this as a reference to the beginning, and what is the the meaning, well, the one and only That's not necessarily the case. That's the point that Frank Nelty is making here. We need to be aware of this grammatical shortcoming in the Latin language. Comment. There is a way in Latin to get around this absence of a definite article, and that is by using the pronoun and adjective illa, illa, elude for emphasis. 
This can have the general effect of the English definite article the, but it isn't really the same as the definite article. And in the text of the Latin Vulgate version, all the forms of illa combined are used far less often than the number of times we find the definite article the in the English language Bible. So in our discussion, we can basically ignore this Latin alternative to the definite article. These points are grammatical features for these different languages. Now let's look at verse 1. The five English words, in the beginning God created, and then, uh, so, Bereshith, bara, Elohim, are a translation of the three Hebrew words, Bereshith, bara, Elohim. There is no article in this Hebrew expression. And it correctly means in a beginning or in beginning, without any article. In a beginning, God created. If it was supposed to say the beginning, then the Hebrew would read ha-bereshith, which is a combination of be and ha-reshith. So he puts the definite article before reshith, be plus ha-reshith. In Hebrew, the first word of every book became the name for that book. So the Hebrew name for Genesis is Bereshith, which means in a beginning, or simply in beginning. By becoming the name for this first book, the Bible, it ensured that the correct form would always be preserved, supposedly. So there is no question whatsoever that the correct translation of the Hebrew text here should read, In a beginning, God created or simply, in beginning, God created, or had created, because that's another alternative. It could also be the uh, past uh, perfect. The first translation of the Hebrew Scriptures was the Greek Septuagint. This Greek text reads as follows, an arche eposin ho theos, which translates, in a beginning, had created the God. If this Greek text was supposed to say in the beginning, then it should have read ente arche, episodes ho theos. But that is not the case. Both the Hebrew text and the Greek Septuagint text are anarthrous in this expression. I think I didn't have a chance to look up the word anarthrous, which means maybe there's an article or not, not an article, <laughs> no article. So maybe somebody in the chat room can look that up for me real quick. Sorry, I didn't get around to doing that. Okay, uh, Nimble Horse says, prove all things. Yes, we have to prove all things. Well, uh, the globe model has no proof, but I would say, for example, here's the type of argument we have to accept from flat earthers, namely the word fixed. They argue that the word fixed means immovable, but that's not the case. The Hebrew word for fixed means to place and you can you can affix a tire to a car and uh, or a wheel to a car and that wheel is capable of moving so they have picked a you know uh, selectively picked a definition that does not apply and so the, the and f uh, they have used the english definition of the word fixed but even in english you can use the word fixed as affix you affix a tire to a car and that doesn't mean it's immobile so the, the word immobile is not correct, okay? So, yeah, you have to do the word studies. Back to the article. So here we go. So, so far, 
but very little to, to disagree with with Frank Nelty. So we continue. Now we come to the next translation, the Latin Vulgate. Remember that Latin does not have any articles for nouns. So the Latin text reads, quote, In principio creavit Deus caelum et terum. The first four words are the say at the same time mean in the beginning, or in a beginning, but there, since there's no article of any kind, uh, it, it should simply say in beginning. God created. And also, it, so it could mean either. He says at the same time, it means both. And also, in the beginning, God created. The last three words at the same time mean heaven and earth. And also, the heaven and the earth. Since the reader does not have the opportunity to personally question the writer of this Latin text, therefore it is up to the reader to decide how to translate this expression. And so he continues... Uh, where is it? Wycliffe. Okay, I'm scrolling down to where he introduces Wycliffe because we're running out of time. Next, notice that Wycliffe freely provided the article, the, in the translation of In Principio. He did not provide any definite articles in the translation of Caelum et Teram. These three words Wycliffe translated as heaven and earth, rather than as the heaven and the earth. This illustrates how subjective the inclusion or omission of a definite article in any translation of a Latin text really is. It is always left up to the translator of a Latin text to decide for himself where to provide definite articles in his translation and where to leave them out. Notice also that Wycliffe introduced the words of naught, out of nothing, into this verse. And the Bible does not say that either. Paul clearly states in his epistles that we the universe is created out of his own body, out of Yahweh's own body. His own being, I should say. His own being. So the Bible nowhere says it was created out of nothing. These words are not found in the Hebrew or Greek or Latin and were simply supplied by Wycliffe with the intention for supposedly clarifying the statement. Later versions would typically have printed such added words in italics, and that's one good thing about the King James, is they italicize the added words. While Wycliffe's rendering in the beginning was grammatically speaking a correct possible way to translate the Latin text, it unquestionably was a mistake when compared to the Hebrew text and also to the Greek Septuagint. As I have already indicated, in this type of situation, the reader of a Latin text can easily get the wrong end of the stick and read a meaning that's the, the wrong end of the stick. That comes from when somebody stirs the uh, muck <laughs> in, in, in the pig, in the pig uh, pen. And you grab the rock end of the stick, you know what it means, okay? And read a meaning into a text which was not intended by the original writer. How he translates this verse depends primarily on the frame of mind and the understanding with which the translator approaches this text. And Wycliffe approached Genesis 1-1 with a wrong understanding. Now he says, Every English translation since then that I have looked at has copied this mistake from Wycliffe they all render this text as in the beginning. To summarize thus far, I have shown that the Hebrew text correctly reads in a beginning or in beginning without any article. And that this, but he says that the, uh, the 
there is the article there that this was correctly translated into Greek and the Septuagint. I have also shown that the ambiguous Latin text of this verse is the original source for the English mistranslation that reads in the beginning. Now, while most of or even all scholars may acknowledge that there is no definite article in the Hebrew text, they will insist that there are other reasons why this is supposed to be a definite statement, but they are wrong. Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 2.11 and Psalm 111.10 explain why they are wrong, but the facts are not going to change the views of such people. We should also note that the Hebrew word for heaven is plural and should literally be translated heavens. The reason for this mistake is that the Latin kaelum in the Vulgate is the accusative singular case. The Greek oranum or oranon in the Septuagint is also singular. Many translations have acknowledged that it should correctly read heavens. Let's now look at a statement in the New Testament, and I'm just going to scratch the surface here, the opening words in the Gospel of John, which gets into the proper understanding of the word Elohim. And this, so I'll just include this as a teaser for next week. John 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Elohim, deity, John 1, 1. The Greek text rendered as in the beginning was the word is enarche and hologos. Here, beginning is also anarthros, but it does not say entearche and hologos. The Greek literally says, in beginning, no article, was the word, meaning, well, he, said, he, he says it automatically means in a beginning, in beginning, but so it definitely can't be used as the beginning. In a beginning was the word. And so, since he, he argues really quickly that because John also states that it was Yahshua, the son, who was given the job of creating the universe, we have two beings, two Elohim, in Genesis 1. Thank you very much. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. More to come. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Be blessed, all you Israelites. Bye-bye.